It's Tuesday, September 17th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. Almost 50,000 workers are on strike against General Motors. We'll look at what the biggest U.S. labor strike in more than a decade is all about. Then, President Trump's former campaign manager was on Capitol Hill today as the House Judiciary Committee weighs impeachment. And finally, we've got the story of one woman's 54-hour swim. And it was epic. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by LaCroix Sparkling Water. The most complicated story today is about auto workers. Nearly 50,000 workers hit the picket line this week in a strike against the classic American car company, General Motors, GM. It's the biggest strike by any labor union in the country in 12 years. And some economists warn it could be so disruptive that it could hurt the economy in certain states or even across the country. So today we're going to get into why auto workers are on strike, how the strike could impact the economy, and why the strike could also test the power of labor unions across the U.S. First, what's happening? Basically, one of America's most powerful labor unions, the United Automobile Workers, or UAW, is picking a fight with one of America's top car makers, General Motors. The UAW had warned this was coming for a while. The two had signed a four-year labor agreement in 2015 that expired on Saturday. And now, UAW wants things like fairer wages, more affordable health care, a share of company profits, and a way for temp workers to graduate into stable jobs. UAW says GM didn't cough up the goods in time for the Saturday deadline. So, strike. Wiley Turnage is an auto worker and local UAW president in Detroit, who's now on the picket line. Nobody wants to be on strike, you know. Everybody is unhappy because corporations, they have made a whole lot of money, you know, and, you know, we're not asking for a whole lot. Workers on strike point to the fact that GM is making a lot of money, about $12 billion in profits last year. When GM went bankrupt during the Great Recession, its workers helped keep GM afloat by accepting cuts to retirees' health care benefits. And now that GM is back to making big money, workers want a new four-year contract with a different structure for how people get paid. Auto workers are also frustrated that, in recent years, GM's been closing factories. GM is saying, we hear you, and that negotiations with the UAW are ongoing. This weekend, the company reportedly offered pay raises, and said it would invest $7 billion in U.S. factories, which could lead to over 5,000 new U.S. jobs. It's hard to say how close the two sides are to reaching a deal. But in the meantime, at GM, there's nothing coming down the assembly line. So what could happen the longer this strike goes on? Some analysts say even if the strike ends later this week, it could still hurt the economies of big car manufacturing states like Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, as tax revenues drop and striking workers spend less. And if this strike lasts more than 10 days, one expert in Michigan predicted that state could go into a one-state recession. And the longer the strike goes on, the more it could hurt GM's profits and the U.S. economy. Not good. In terms of GM's ability to stay afloat, They've reportedly been stockpiling extra cars for weeks. So that means they can keep selling cars, even if they're not making them right now. By one estimate, GM has 77 days worth of cars to sell before the company runs out. 
In terms of how auto workers are affected, the UAW does give out what's called strike pay, $250 a week to make up for no paycheck, but it only kicks in after two weeks of a strike, meaning workers could be more inclined to end the strike if they're worried about money. Bigger picture, like we said, this is putting a spotlight on the strengths and weaknesses of labor unions in the U.S. Overall, union membership in the U.S. is declining. It peaked in 1954 when one in three American workers belonged to a union. That dropped to around 20% in the 1980s and is around 10% now. So unions like UAW speak for fewer workers than they used to. But there's still power in numbers. For example, the drivers who usually deliver GM cars to dealerships aren't on strike but their union says they won't deliver any new cars until the UAW strike is over. So much for all that stockpiling. And even though overall union membership is down, labor movements are having kind of a moment right now. Fast food workers, for instance, have organized and helped push certain cities and states to increase their minimum wages. And in newer industries like digital media, Workers are unionizing to push back against long hours and low wages. Plus, with U.S. unemployment close to a 50-year low and plenty of jobs left to fill, workers are saying essentially, you want us? Pay us. So what's the skim? Close to 50,000 autoworkers are on strike and asking the car company GM for better wages and benefits. The union leading this has a long history of big job walkouts but it hasn't flexed its muscle this much since before the Great Recession. So this strike could become a major test of the power of unions. Even though membership is down, support for unions is up. According to a recent Gallup poll, 64% of Americans approve of labor unions. That's one of the highest levels of union support in half a century. Just about every big name Democrat running for president in 2020 has thrown their support behind the auto workers. And while President Trump said he was sad to see the strike and wanted it to be, quote, a quick one, he's also lobbied hard for U.S. car makers to stay in the U.S. and preserve American jobs. Meaning that, at least on this issue, both Democrats and Republicans could find themselves on the same side of the picket line. If you want to go deeper on the history of labor unions, check out our website at theskim.com guides. Coming up, Congress holds its first impeachment hearing with a special guest. We'll tell you why this is a big deal after the break. Thirsty? Try LaCroix. Made only with flavor ingredients certified as natural, each LaCroix is non-GMO and produced without a BPA liner. LaCroix uses their own production facilities to assure the highest level of quality in every can. With its distinctive packaging, robust aroma, and natural essence, LaCroix is the perfect alternative for health-conscious consumers. Join the LaCroix community on social at at LaCroix Water. For more information and a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixWater.com. The House Judiciary Committee today held the first official hearing of its impeachment investigation into President Trump. And it starred Trump's first 2016 campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Remember, the committee voted last week to call certain hearings impeachment hearings, which gives them more flexibility to question witnesses about Trump's possible obstruction of justice or abuse of power. And for the first hearing, they invited Lewandowski, along with two former White House aides named Rick Dearborn and Rob Porter. The committee subpoenaed all three. Here's why. Their names appear in special counsel Robert Mueller's big report. 
which laid out 10 instances of potential obstruction of justice by the president. According to Mueller, back in the summer of 2017, Trump allegedly told Lewandowski to tell then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions to limit Mueller's investigation and to call it unfair in public. Lewandowski said, okay, I'll talk to Sessions. But then he asked Dearborn to do it for him. In the end, no one did it. But the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, said today it was one of the most concerning alleged episodes of obstruction of justice. Meanwhile, the third guy, Rob Porter, is important because apparently he's the guy that took all the notes, including about Trump allegedly trying to fire Mueller. So that's why the committee wants to hear from them. But after they issued the subpoenas, the White House said, oh, sorry, Dearborn and Porter can't make it. The White House counsel said those two guys are, quote, absolutely immune from testifying. That as senior advisors to the president, any convos they had in the line of work should stay private. Lewandowski never worked in the White House, so he did show up today. But the White House says his testimony has to be limited. A White House spokesperson says that's because confidential convos with Trump or other top officials should stay confidential. At today's hearing, Lewandowski didn't share many new details. And it got really heated when he was questioned by Democrats on the committee. When they asked Lewandowski for his recap, he insisted on finding the page in the Mueller report that detailed the event. Mr. Congressman, I'm trying to uh, adhere to the White House's request. I answer questions that are provided in the Mueller report only. So I'm trying to reference that report directly about your question, Congressman. But he also wouldn't say what he talked to the president about. So basically, he wasn't that helpful. We should point out here that Lewandowski is happy to have the spotlight. He's thinking of running for Senate in New Hampshire, and his aggressive defense of Trump could help him in his campaign. As for the two guys who didn't show up today, Dearborn and Porter, it's possible we'll hear from them one day. Right now, a judge is weighing whether the White House can keep the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, from testifying before that same committee. The ruling in that lawsuit could force these guys to testify too. In Indonesia, one in four girls is married before they turn 18. The country has one of the highest numbers of child brides in the world. But that's maybe about to change. Indonesia's parliament just agreed to make edits to their marriage law to raise the minimum age for marriage. It used to be 16, but parents could request permission for girls even younger than that to get married. Now, thanks to this new law, you have to be 19. This problem isn't unique to Indonesia. Globally, about 12 million underage girls are married every year, including here in the U.S. There's actually no federal minimum age for people to get married here. Delaware was the first state to outlaw child marriage, and that was just last year. From 2000 to 2015, more than 200,000 minors in the U.S. got married. That's according to public records from 41 states. By changing their law, Indonesia might be fixing other problems too. Child marriage can lead to higher rates of maternal and infant deaths and can encourage the use of child labor. So this new law could bring kids one step closer to just being kids.
Before we go today, we've got a fun fact coming to you from the English Channel. Swim season might be over, but for American swimmer Sarah Thomas, she's still making waves. Today, she became the first person to swim the English Channel four times nonstop. It took over 54 hours. After Thomas crawled onto shore this morning, Loretta Cox of the Channel Swimming Academy asked her how she got through it. Sarah's response? Her support crew. Over 24 hours ago when we turned around. Yeah. I thought I was going to quit. I was throwing up. I was sick. She said, you got this. My husband said, keep going. Thomas has always been a fighter. She's a breast cancer survivor. And in a Facebook post before she dove into the English Channel, she dedicated her swim to, quote, all the survivors out there. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks for listening and be sure to hit subscribe so we're in your feed every weekday. Also, we love podcast reviews. So if you can, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review Skim This. And if you don't already, sign up for our free morning newsletter, The Daily Skim, by heading over to theskim.com.